turn with me uh, today to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll be in Ephesians, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. So today we finish Ephesians, chapter 3. We finish the first section of kind of the first uh, portion of the book of Ephesians. And uh, as we begin in chapter 4, we'll start to see kind of the the teaching of Paul. So Paul begins in the first three chapters to kind of encourage and direct our thoughts, uh, give us a basis from which the teaching can flow. So let's uh, finish that today. Uh, As you get there, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we opened our time together in God's Word by considering what it would be like if we had direct access to the President of the United States. So if we could just call him up whenever, wherever, no matter what he was doing, and know that we could get in touch with him and we could speak with him, it wouldn't matter what he was doing, right? He could be in the middle of a the most important meeting of his career as president, and we could get in touch with him, and he would answer our call. And what it would be like if we had that access. Uh, and we were comparing that with the boldness and the confident access that we have to Christ Uh, that we have in Christ to God, right? That we can approach God whenever, wherever, and he will listen to us and answer us. And today, as we come to our passage, we might consider that idea afresh. What would it be like to have free access to the president? But instead of thinking about it in the terms of access, think about it in the terms of power. There is much that we could do if we had the backing of the president of the United States, right? If he was able to just send off a letter, make an executive order, uh, do whatever he could do politically, right? We could do a lot. A lot could change. Uh, Those irritating people that stand in our way of certain things, right? They would be quickly out of the way because the president could uh, impress his power upon them. And so we think of the president of the United States as, powerful, right? He is powerful. He's a powerful man in a powerful office. Uh, But he has many limits, right? He has limits to his power. Uh, He is limited by his ability. Uh, He is limited by Congress, right? He can only do so much. Uh, We have a system of government where there are checks and balances. The judiciary limits the power of the president. He is limited in his power by the reaction of foreign powers, right? So he can't just go into whatever land he wants and says, this is my land now, um, because there will be quick uh, reprisals from other nations. So he can't do anything he wants at any time he wants as he wants. And as we consider earthly powers, right, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have limits on earthly power. It's good and necessary for the flourishing of human life. But there is one who is all power, right? There is one who, if he commits to do something, it's done. And there's never any question about that. There is none who can stop him. There is none who can limit him in any manner whatsoever. And so today I want us to consider this all-powerful one in this context of our passage. I want us to see today that God is glorified 
in the good of his people. God is glorified in the good of his people. So turn to Ephesians 3, and I'll read for us verses 16 through 21, and hear this. This is the word of God. And the word reads, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So remember, Paul is writing this letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He writes to the believers there. He's writing to the saints there. And it seems that the design of this letter is to be distributed among other churches. So its primary audience may be the Ephesians, but it's a wider audience is the churches who will read it, which, by the way, includes us today, right? And thus far in this letter, Paul has praised God. He's written of the glories of Christ. And in chapter 3, Paul begins to detail how he is the a minister of the mystery of Christ, and that is that the Gentiles are to share in the grace of God. And in verse 13 of chapter 3, he writes to them, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And this issue of his suffering, his imprisonment, his tribulations becomes the catalyst for the prayer that he begins in verse 14. As he considers his role as a gospel minister, his tribulations, and his concern for the church, he begins to pray for them. And Paul doesn't use the typical language of prayer in verse 14, but it's this language of, of bowing his knees, of worship, of bowing down before God and entreating him. And he is praying to the Father. And who is the Father? Well, it's the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That is the one who has created all creatures, all persons. Angels and humans are created by God regardless of their obedience or rebellion of God's commands and to God's commands, right? So, so regardless of their uh, state before God, they are still created by God. And uh, this is the one who he comes to. And why do I emphasize that? Because Paul is not pleading. He's not entreating the president of the United States. Or in his time, right? Because there was no such thing. He's not writing to the Roman emperor saying, would you intercede on my behalf in the lives of these Christians in Ephesus? You know, Paul is entreating the one who is sovereign power. And I also want to give us a little overview of this uh, prayer, a little, little 
idea of the structure here before we get into it proper so we can understand the request Paul is making. There's a word in the Greek that demarcates, so marks out three main requests. And there's some kind of sub-requests there, but there's three main requests. And that word in the English is often translated so that, or it might just be translated that. We'll see that. The word is found at the beginning of verses 16 and 18, and then in the middle of verse 19. So that seems to be the structure that Paul is using here. The commentators, scholars kind of see this structure and so emphasize it that way. And then finally in verses 20 and 21, Paul ends with what we call a doxology, which is a statement of praise, a, a, a worship moment. A, a glorying in God, which, by the way, that first uh, portion of that word, dox, means glory. That's the Greek word for glory, doxa, glory. So it's a, it's a glorying of God. So let's come to our passage, and I want us to see first in verses 16 and 17 that Paul prays for the church. He wants them to be strengthened in power strengthened in power in verses 16 and 17 strengthened in power and again verse 16 starts that and again so that and this is our first major request and his request here right is that he may grant you to be strengthened with power now there's more to this verse than just the actual request right there's a lot surrounding it so let's kind of break it down into its component parts and where does paul begin he says that according to the riches of his glory according to the riches of his glory so paul begins the, his prayer request with linking it to the abundance of god's glory that's how Paul prays for the church. He says, according to God's super abundance of glory, according to his exceeding amount of glory. How glorious is God? How glorious is God? Right. So we have some hints and we can take some different looks at look, look at this uh, throughout the scripture. We can consider, for instance, the extent of God's radiance. That is of God's glory in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 23 tells us, Revelation 21, 23, what will the new heavens and the new earth be like in relation to God's glory? And speaking of Jerusalem here, the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ, right? So we're told of the glory of God that it is so radiant that it outshines the sun and the moon. We could understand the moon, right? The moon doesn't always shine that brightly. But the sun, go stare out at the sun this afternoon. Don't actually do that. You'll wreck your eyes. <laughs> but right, what, what, what will you see in the sun? Radiance and glory. 
And yet God's glory is greater than the sunshine. David writes in Psalm 19.1. So again, what do we think of God's glory? How glorious is God? David writes Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So think of that right now as you... Think of the stars out there, of which our sun is one. The stars in the sky show something, express something of God's transcendent beauty. And if we know something of the composition of that which is in heaven, right? So what I'm talking about here is is if we think of black holes, red giants, quasars and pulsars and all the rest all that exists out there in the heavens they're powerful right a black hole is theoretically so powerful that light the fastest thing can't even escape it It can't escape its gravitational pull and if so so if something goes down a black hole it there is no power that can retrieve it from it. And yet these things are but a fraction of the power of God. They eke out a tiny, fractional, minuscule of God's power and glory. Or we could think of God's glorious presence uh, in, as he reveals it through the wilderness wanderings. Right? Turn to Exodus 19. So keep your finger in Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 3, rather, sorry. Ephesians 3, and look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19. And in particular, I want us to look at, uh, starting at verse 16. Exodus 19:16 reads, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. The author of Hebrews, by the way, of this, of this time, of this event, says that even Moses trembled. All the people trembled. And what did they tremble at? The glorious presence of God. And how did God show up? Thunder, smoke, lightning, 
earthquakes. The whole mountain trembled. And this, by the way, is but a veiled example of God's glory. Right? It's God withholding some of his might. God is powerful. What's my point in all this? God is rich in glory. How glorious is God? He's all glory. Right? He's rich in glory. He has more than enough glory. He has an overabundance of glory. The treasury of God's glory is the place from which Paul prays that the Ephesians, that the people of God be strengthened. God gives out of his abundance. And even if God gave to all his people such that their cup overflowed, God's glory would not be diminished in the littlest bit. Paul begins here because he wants his readers to be absolutely confident that God is able to grant what is being requested because God has more than enough to give. Kids, right? Ada, it's not like when you have a little bit of cookie and someone comes up to you and says, oh, share your cookie with me. And you think, or more likely you say, no, I don't want to share my, my, I only have enough for myself. I don't want to share with you. This is my cookie, not, not yours. Go get your own. God is not like that with his glory. God has more than enough. He has enough to share. And he gives out of the riches of his glory. For what end? Well, that's what Paul prays for here, right? He prays that the people be strengthened with power. God's God, out of his glory, gives the people power. Paul's prayers for them to have might. Now, why would the Ephesians need power? Well, we could consider that in the most immediate context, right? If we think of verse 13 here, Paul's tribulations, Paul's imprisonment, Paul has been in trouble. It could be that the Ephesians themselves have begun to experience such things. We certainly know in, from church history, right, from, from world history, that the Romans persecuted Christians greatly. Uh, that there were emperors who did such things as uh, crucify Christians and light them on fire to, to light his gardens, right? So, so this kind of story commonly goes. We know that the Roman Empire turned harshly against them. And so why do they need power? They need power to withstand the tribulations. They need strength to, to withstand that which they were experiencing and that they were going to experience. They require God's power. Now, what's important is what kind of power are we talking about here? Well, the first thing, let's see that it is through his spirit. Look at that. And again, in our verse here, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit or by his spirit. The power that the church is to have here is through the spirit of God. Right? Paul is praying for the indwelling uh, spirit of God to grant them power. This is what Jesus promised in the version of the Great Commission we get in the book of Acts in Acts 8. In Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in, Jude in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says, you will receive power. How? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if we looked at the book of Acts, right, we could see the ways in which the Spirit's power worked through the church to the glory of God. For instance, there was the day of Pentecost as the believers met and as the Holy Spirit descended on them, what did they do? They spoke in tongues, not their own. Uh, they weren't speaking intentionally, right? They weren't saying, I'm going to speak in, in Greek here. I'm going to speak in Latin. I'm going to speak uh, in, in, in whatever languages the people are here before us. No, they spoke and the Spirit worked powerfully. We could think about the ways in which the apostles healed people, right? That, that they undid the deformities of the body, how they cast out demons. Paul's ministry was marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And those are some of the exceptional ways, right? But let's also think of the more common ways. The Spirit's power shows up when men of God are given gifts to preach and teach. The Spirit's power shows up when faithful Christians administer the church of God. Right? That's one of the spiritual gifts. Administration. Uh, how, how common that is, right? How, how simple that is, and we would never think of it as something remarkable or as the working of God's power. But it is. The Spirit's power shows up when we are pressed into the most difficult of situations and respond not with losing hope, but abounding in hope. Uh, that's what Paul prays for the Romans in Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. How are you, beloved, to abound in hope? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. When a believer continues to hold out for hope, for the grace and the promises of God in the most hopeless of situations, that is the power of God, the power of the Spirit at work in them. The Spirit is power, and it's through the Spirit that the Christian is empowered to live out the Word of God. So we ought pray, may we be strengthened with power through his spirit. But where is that power located? Again, what is Paul praying for here? And let's look at that last phrase of verse 16. So strengthen with power through his spirit in your inner being or in your inner person or in your inner man. In this phrase, inner being or inner man or inner person, this is about the heart, right? So this is about the soul. Paul locates the power of God in the inner person, in the seat of that person. So here's the reality of what Paul's praying for. What is he not praying for? What kind of power is not in view here? Paul is not praying that the church may have political power. Paul is not praying that they have physical strength. Paul is praying for spiritual strength. That's what he is praying for. 
And the question for us today, as we consider, as we pray for the churches in our community, as we pray for the churches in the world, as we pray for our missionaries that are in distant lands, as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted, as we pray for Redeeming Grace Fellowship, what are we praying for? What power do we believe the church needs? Because there are some Christians in America today, there are pastors, there are churches who believe that the, what the church needs most, and maybe that is an overstatement, but they believe what the church needs is political power. They believe that the church needs more people, more representation in the halls of Congress. They believe and pray that the, that the president is a Christian president. They believe that if the church is vested with more political power, she would be able to do more and certainly be stronger than she is today. And indeed, some of our spiritual forebears believed most readily that the church should be vested with the power of the state, that there should be no separation of church and state. We as Baptists believe differently. We are not trying to make an Old Testament theocratic state here in the United States. The gospel flourishes most in places where each person can worship in accordance with their conscience. Now, that doesn't mean, right, as Baptists, that doesn't mean that we believe that all religions are valid or that all religions have equal worth or that all beliefs are equally right. There is truth and there is falsehood. But we also don't believe that the church is strongest when it has the reins of the kingdoms of earth. Consider the context of Ephesians. So why do I say Paul's not praying here for political power, right? He's praying for them to be strengthened by the Spirit of God in their inner person. Consider Paul's own situation. Would he have been better off if the Romans were Christians? Yeah, right? He wouldn't be in prison. Uh, he wouldn't be undergoing persecution and hardship at the hands of the Romans. But here he doesn't pray, right? He has just expressed how he is undergoing tribulation, and yet his first thought of prayer is not, God, overcome the Romans and establish your earthly kingdom, your people Israel. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's not Paul's first thought. We'll see it's not even Paul's second or third thought, right? It doesn't appear. Why? We could also consider here that, again, he's not praying for, for physical strength. He's not praying that they would be a bunch of Samsons. He's not praying that there'd be more wrestling stars in their midst, right? It's not that he wants them to be physically weak or frail, but he knows that the most important need for the Ephesian Christians 
is not physical strength or political power. It's spiritual strength. He wants them to be godly. He wants them to walk in holiness. Political power can be good. Physical strength is good. But Paul prays for the better. And I would ask if you were writing a prayer for the church today, what would it entail? What would it include? What would it leave out? In other words, I'm asking you to consider what you think is the most pressing need of the church. What does the church need? You know, consider that for our own fellowship here. What does Redeeming Grace Fellowship need? Another shape of this, another reason for this, I believe, is what we see later. We've referenced it before in different contexts and earlier in Ephesians. But in Ephesians 6, we get the sense of why they need to be strengthened by the Spirit of God in their inner being. Ephesians 6, 12, right? Just turn, turn a couple pages over there. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why does the church need spiritual strength? Because they fight a spiritual war. We need spiritual strength to fight spiritual battles and and we pray to God give us your spirit to that end the greatest need for redeeming grace fellowship is not physical material things the greatest need is spiritual strength we have spiritual wars whether that's in our own life the lives of those around us by the way I'll digress here for a moment and say you know, the, the sleepiness and, and, and lulledness, I think I just made that word up, but we'll go for it, that, that happens when we gather together and when we begin listening to preaching and teaching, you know where that comes from? It could be just a matter of a physical malady. It could be physical illness. But don't think that the one thing that Satan would hesitate to use is lulling you to sleep to make you forget and ignore what God says. Do you not realize that when we gather together here together, right? When we gather together, there is spiritual warfare going on in me and in you. God give us strength, right? God give us strength. So, so Paul prays that they may be granted strength with power through his spirit, through God's spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 17 there, right? So the next part is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And essentially what Paul is doing here, right? He's linking Christ in the spirit and he's linking inner being with in your hearts. And so he's kind of saying the same thing again in a different manner. Right? He, he is asking for the indwelling spirit of Christ. John Gill writes here about this passage. John Gill writes, the inhabitant Christ. What is Paul praying for? 
The inhabitant Christ is he who dwells in the highest heavens, who dwells in the Father, and the Father in him, in whom all fullness dwells, the fullness of the Godhead, and the fullness of grace, so that those in whose hearts he dwells cannot want any good thing, must be in the greatest safety, and enjoy the greatest comfort and pleasure. That's what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts. Christ Jesus is the Son of God, and the Father loves the Son and gives everything to Him. And if God has given us His Son, how will He not also with Him give us everything? Jesus promises in John 14.23, John 14.23, Jesus answered Him, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God does not keep his children at arm's length. He is not a distant God. The Lord God is not far from us, but if you are in Christ, he dwells in you. He richly dwells in you. He comes and makes his home with you. And this all through faith, right? This is the, the method, the means, through faith. It's through trusting in Christ. It's through believing in God as God, that God is good, that God is glorious, that God is giving from his abundant grace and mercy. Brothers and sisters, we need this power. We need the presence of Christ in us. Without the work of God for us and in us, we will surely fall, fail, and perish. We must say, what Moses says to God, if you do not go up with us, we cannot go. We perish. What hope do we have? But God is with us. God is with his people. And may we ever pray for more and more of the presence and power of God in us and through us. May the glory of God resound in the community around us because of God's work in us, brothers and sisters. So pray this for each other. Pray this for those brothers and sisters in Christ you know in other places. May the church grow from strength to strength. There is much against her. There is war being made against her. And that war is not flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces of evil that design and desire to see its destruction. But as God is God, it can never be destroyed. So he prays for the Ephesians and continues in verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love. So being rooted and grounded in love. And there's not this great logical connection to what has proceeded to this point. In other words, it kind of seems like Paul's just throwing stuff out there. But we, if we look into this, right, this is the result of Christ dwelling in us. If Christ is in us, the result of that work of God in us is us being rooted and grounded in love or being established in the love of God. Right? This is the foundation of our souls. God loves us. It's not that we loved God, but that he loves us. Remember 
Back in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. Right? 1 through 3, we're dead. We're walking in rebellion to God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And note here that it is not us rooting and grounding ourselves in God's love. These are passive verbs. What, the, what does that mean? God is doing the work. It's being done to us, but another is doing it. We are being rooted and grounded by God in his love. And so let's continue to reflect on this in the next section. In verses 18 and the first part of 19, strengthened in love, strengthened in love, starting in verse 18. And some things to note here at the outset, as we look at this, right, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And there's no object really given as to what these dimensions relate to. And if you go read uh, commentators and scholars, there's a number of suggestions which are given which, which could be in view here. Uh, some of them are quite fantastical. But I think it's best that we stick to the context of the passage and what has been what has Paul been writing about? God's love. So I think it makes most sense to understand that in this context, the immediate context, the love of God. Uh, the second thing to note is that uh, there is in the Greek at the beginning of this verse that little word that I said marks out the three major requests. But if you notice in your English translations, you don't have in verse 18, so that or that. And rather what they do is they move that to the beginning of that phrase of being rooted and grounded in love. So that's where we find that that you or in the King James, that ye. Um, not to be confused with the rapper. Uh, sorry, that's just an aside <laughs> for those that get it, get it. For the rest, it doesn't matter. Uh, so, so they link that back up there. And again, I think that's to help us. The translators do that to help us to understand the context of verse 18, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. But in reality, that Greek word starts here in verse 18. And so this makes the second major request. So if we take the object of these dimensions, right, the dimensions of breadth and length and height and depth, and we take the object of that being God's love, what is Paul asking for the believers in Ephesus? He wants them to comprehend or understand or grasp the dimensions of God's love. And this is really unique phrasing in the scriptures. The only other place that we get close to it is in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, in which Paul there writes about the love of Christ and that nothing can separate the people of God from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? And you might recognize, right, neither height nor depth 
neither angels nor rulers, right? Those kinds of things. Can, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so here Paul is praying that we would understand the love of God. And he uses these terms of spatial dimensions. And we might think of this something like picking up a gemstone, picking up a diamond and examining it. And looking at its qualities. Right? We, we see its luster and sheen. We see how the light refracts through it. We see if there are any occlusions or, or marks within the crystal. We feel the coolness of it and maybe the toughness of it. Right? Maybe we take it to a window and scratch it to see, to see don't do that either, uh, to see if it's real or not. Right? So we all understand the love of God and its dimensions. And I don't think it's helpful for us here to press press any one of these dimensions in too far of a metaphor. So saying like, okay, well, what does breadth mean? What does length mean? And, and really there's just, in the Greek, there's one article that, that covers all the dimensions. And so this idea is that it's a whole. We're looking at the whole. What is the whole of God's love? So to ask it more plainly, what is the shape of God's love? And really, we might use another dimension to understand it, unfathomable. 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Right? In this, the love of God appeared among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is the Apostle John writing there? He's saying God's love showed up in this way. And by the way, God is love. We want to know what love is. We know we have to know who God is. And he showed us love. Right? He manifested love. Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is proof of God's love toward us. And there it says, right, in this is love, not that we loved God first. It's not that we, we said, God, we love you. And God said, okay, because you love me, I'm going to love you. No, we said, God, we hate you. And God said, but I love you. And here's the proof of it. And in our sinful rebellion of God, we deserve his wrath. But what does God give instead? Love. Love in the person of Christ, who is our propitiation. And that word means something like wrath bearer. The idea of that word is that Christ Jesus takes the wrath of God that we deserve. He stands in our place. And so in place of Jesus gets our wrath that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, and we get the love of God that Jesus deserves. And this is love, right? He, he loved us. Now, now, again, think of this in a natural way. It's natural for us to love those who love us, right? It's natural if your spouse loves you and does something nice for you, it's natural for you, for you to love them and do something nice for them. When our friends show us love, we love in return. 
But how many of us love our enemies? How many of us, when spat upon and mocked and beaten and, and derided and shamed, would return with full genuineness of heart? So, right, I'm not saying, because this is something common, right? Someone is hateful towards you and you respond, well, God bless you. When we mean that with as much venom as we can give those words. Right now, I'm saying with full genuineness of heart, say to such a one that is hateful and hating and done hateful things towards us. I love you and mean it. But this is what Christ did. And friend, you may not love God, but God has shown you the proof of his love. He has displayed the dimensions of his love in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, if you trust in his love, then you will know the unfathomable love of Jesus for you. So trust in Christ this day. Paul prays that the Ephesians may, may know the love of God. And, and notice here too, and, and again, go back to verse 18, Ephesians 3, 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is not a private, individual affair of understanding the dimensions of God's love. This is a communal affair. This is for the whole church. And here's the thing, church. Some of us understand God's love with better measure than others. And it's incumbent upon us to encourage and instruct one another in these things and say, have you considered God's love for you? Have you considered in this circumstance you're going through right now how God has shown you his love? Continuing on verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The second part is very similar to the first here, right? Again. But here Paul prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, a good question for us is how can we know anything that surpasses knowledge? And the answer is we can't, right? Only by the power of God can we. Only by God's work in us can we. Whereas in verse 18, we might consider the dimensions of God's love. In verse 19, here we consider the unknowability of God's love. That is, unless God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand and believe. Unless God does this, you cannot understand his love. You will not. It'll be a mist to you. Sin is such and Satan is such that it blinds us to the truth of God. Right? What was Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden? That they would become like God. And yet, when they ate of the fruit, what happened to them? They didn't become like God. They fell and they couldn't see God. They couldn't understand God. They fell into darkness and blindness. They were actually less able to know who God is after they ate of the fruit than they were before they ate of the fruit. 
And that's what sin does, right? It blinds us to the truth of God and his love. And indeed, don't we hear this repeated in our culture? When someone goes through a very difficult, trying circumstance, when they lose their first, firstborn child, when they lose uh, everything that they have in the world, or whatever calamity or circumstance or malady may befall them, they may say something like this. If God was truly loving, he would have never let this happen to me. And here we have the serpent's lie told anew. Did God really say that he was loving? And looking at the events of our life, we may conclude that no, he is not loving. And so we walk away from love. May God have mercy on us to give us sight of his love. Oh, that he would pour out his spirit on this land around us and make it breathe and understand and know and trust in his love. What glory we ought to give him, the God of love, the God that is love. And even in that word love, right, we are most relying on him. Because we don't define it. When we come to the scripture, when we talk about who God is, we don't define it the way this world defines it. That's not where we get our definition of that word. Because I love chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. And I love God. Are those two things the same? We use the same word. We don't define this word in the way the world does. We define it not in terms of who we are and our understanding. We go to God to understand what love is. God sets the tone and the meaning and the fullness and the goodness of love. We go to his word. We go to the passage we, we say all the time in weddings, right? First Corinthians 13. What is how do we define love? Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened in power, strengthened in love. And now let's consider the last prayer request before we get to the doxology. And I want us to see in the last half of verse 19, strengthened in fullness, strengthened in fullness. And again, we have that Greek word here, that that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what does Paul pray for in this third major request of his in this prayer? He wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. And by the way, what a bold prayer request. Go back to Ephesians 3.12. We have boldness and confident access. We can pray bold prayers. This is not. So listen to what this is not. This is not Paul praying that we would be God as God is God. Okay, listen. Did you hear that clearly and closely, right? Paul is not praying that we would be God as God is God. There are some Christian cults who believe that on your death, on your glorification, you become a God. That is false. That is not what the scripture says. And that's not what Paul is here praying for. Again, 
That's the serpent's lie in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? You do this, you'll be like God. No, he prays that we might be filled with the love of God, that we might be filled with the knowledge of God, that our faith may be whole, that our hope may abound and overflow, that we may be holy as God is holy. And may this be our prayer for one another this day. May God fill us all full of his love and grace. May he perfect in us that which he is working out in our faith. May we be as Christ is holy. May we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is our aim, right? Which is our goal, which is the thing that God is working out. Romans 8, right? God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? That they may be conformed to the image of Christ. So let us be strengthened in the fullness of God. And now let's move to the doxology in verses 20 and 21, strengthened in glory. Strengthened in glory, verses 20 and 21. And how natural is it for us to move from thinking on God's work, on God's love, on God's power of us being given grace upon grace to praising the God of power and love and grace. Right? So Paul draws our attention to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Right? He is praying, he is praising the omnipotent God, the God of all power, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than, and by the way, that is the word in the Greek, it's like just the just heaps of phrases of trying to express the exceeding nature of God's grace and goodness and power and love. And he is able to do that far more abundantly than our small thoughts allow. And in this, we need to confess our faithlessness before God. How often do we, brothers and sisters, pray reservedly? How frequently do we hesitate to ask for big things from God? How regularly do we conform our prayers to the things that we can do rather than the things that God can do. Think on this, for instance, from Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. Jesus with his disciples, they're going on their way. Matthew 21, starting in verse 18. In the morning, that is, uh, and as he, that is Jesus. So in the morning as he was returning to the city, and again, they're in Jerusalem. So in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? 
unless God gives them vision to see they can't understand who Jesus is, right? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. He is omnipotent after all. And what does that mean for us in our prayers? Well, does this mean that tonight if I go to bed and I really, really concentrate and think and, and I really believe and I call forth Bentley in the driveway, that I'll wake up in the morning and I'll go out to the driveway and look, there's a Bentley with my name on it. He's still in the car. Does this mean, so that's a, a joking, right? That's a joking request, but more seriously. Does that mean I go to the doctors and I get a diagnosis of cancer and I really concentrate and believe and, and pray and say, God, get rid of the cancer within my body. Will the illness be gone? It's possible. I'm not going to discount the work of God because he's far able to do far more abundantly than all I can ask or think. But also we have to be beware, be cautious of the kind of thing that says, if I can call out what I want and I can believe it, God has to do it. God does not have to do anything we ask of him. He is able to do more than we ask of him, but he has to do nothing that we, we cannot control God. So if that's how we're going into our prayers, if we're going into our prayers thinking, God, you owe me this, we've already encountered error in our prayer. Such, such thoughts really are too low. Even getting rid of cancer in our body, that is a thought too low. And fail to capture the heart of God, the will of God for us in Christ. Because here's the thing, God does give us good gifts. And sometimes those gifts are earthly rewards. But earthly rewards pale in comparison to the heavenly. Right, so so why do I why would I even say, because it seems so harsh to say, that the that being free from cancer is a low thing to ask for? I'm not telling you don't pray for that. If there's illness, pray for it. God is gracious and merciful. But the most important thing that we need is not a whole body here on earth. The most important thing we need is God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and for us to stand before him on the day of judgment and hear him say unto us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. The rest of this stuff of earth is temporary. It's, it's temporary. This earthly stuff is temporary. Why didn't Paul pray for the Ephesians to get political power so they could run that city and they could do whatever they wanted? 
because that's temporary. That's, that's not eternal. The things that are seen are temporary. And what matters most is the unseen, the eternal. These things around us are dust and ash as we are. The things eternal, however, forever, right? They last. And at the end of the world, when this world is destroyed in fire, the eternal soul will remain. And it will either be cast into that place of fire called hell, or it will enjoy the glories of heaven forevermore. So let us not strive after earthly things, but let us think the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And let us mold our prayers to that end, that God be glorified. Right? So, so understand that, but believe that. And if you have earthly need, pray for it. Christ teaches us that much in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We don't really understand what that means because we go and we buy all our groceries one time in a week and we have it for the whole week. So we know on, you know, on Sunday if we're going to eat the rest of the week because we've already bought the groceries. But understand that that was not the case for those early believers, the early church. That's not the case for many who are in distant lands than us. We live in excess and abundance and wealth. And God have mercy on us because how do we use it? But he's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all that we ask or think. And notice where he locates that. Go back to verse 20 here in Ephesians 3, verse 20. According to the power at work within us. What's the point? This is the power of God at work in us. The omnipotent God is able to do all things, anything, and he is at work in us. His power is at work in us, right? He can take a dead man and make him alive. He can take dried out, sun-bleached bones and give them life, clothe them with flesh and make them breathe. He can take you, sin-dead sinner, and forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, fit you for heaven and make you to know his love and mercy and be able to see his glory. Praise God for that. And so indeed, 21, to him be glory in the church. All right, let's just pause there and say, brothers and sisters, this is why we gather to glorify God, to bring him the glory, do his name. To give him the glory, do his name. That's not just a catchy tagline. It's not just a quote from the book of Psalms. It's not just aspirational. It's what we are here for. We do not add to the glory of God. We do not give him something he needs. Because remember what Paul prayed earlier? According to the riches of his glory, may you be strengthened. God already has all the glory he needs. And yet we, as his creatures, as his people, as his church, get to, and I do say get to, right? We're not have to. We get to give him glory. We get to worship and praise him. That's what this church fellowship is about. 
May we praise God from now on and forevermore. To him be glory in the church, in the body of Christ, and also in Christ Jesus himself. Right? This is what Jesus, Jesus is about. Jesus is about glorifying God. You could look at John 17 and see how Jesus says, God, I have come here. Father, I have come here to glorify you, and I've done that. Now glorify me with the glory that I had before when I was with you. To him be glory and honor and praise now and forever and ever. Or in a more literal translation of that is uh, from age to ages. Or more poetic as the King James Version, world without end. How long should God receive the glory? There is no end to the time frame when God deserves glory. Amen. Truly, may it be so. So God is glorified in the good of his people. He's not grudging towards his people. He wants for them their good. And understand that God being glorified is not at odds with the good of his people. In other words, God's glory and our good are not mutually exclusive. We sometimes think that, I, I, I think, that we think, well, God can either be glorified or I can have this good. That's not true. Instead, we find them intertwined. They are a cord woven together. God's glory is his people's good. And God's, uh, the good of his people is for his glory. So as we think of this prayer for, of Paul, what does this mean for us today? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that God's power at work in us is only through faith, right? God's power at work in us is through faith. Without faith, without trusting in God, we cannot please him, the scriptures tell us. And we should expect nothing from him. For some of you, you need to come to faith in God. You need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord. You need to believe that he died for your sins, that you had sins to die for. And you need to confess the truth about them before God. You need to go to him and plead with him to save you and to make known to you his love. Ask him to open your eyes to see the truth. He is not grudging. He loves to do that. He delights to show grace toward his people. And you can be one of his people if you believe in Jesus. For some of you, realize that love demands something of you too. Love demands something from you. Some of you may boast that you know about the love of God, but you really live your lives as ignorant fools. You may think me harsh in saying that, but you have to realize that love demands response. John 15 tells us, uh, John 15 too, Jesus speaking, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you hear what the scripture said there? Were you listening to God's word? If you are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, if you're not expressing your love of Christ and obedience to his commandments, then you will be thrown into the fire and burned. That's not me trying to guilt trip you into conformity to some religious rules. 
That's what the word of God describing what love means. That's what the word says. And here's the reality. We need the love of God, right? We need his power at work in us to know his love and to live in light of it. We are ever dependent on him. So brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for big things. Pray for difficult things. Pray for impossible things. By the way, one of those impossible things is how is it possible that a dead person could have life? How is it someone who is so entrenched in their sin and in rebellion against God see light and walk in the marvelous light of God? That's impossible. What does Jesus say after the rich young ruler walks away sad? It's impossible for the rich man to enter into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does he say? With man, this is impossible. But all things are possible with God. He's omnipotent. Right? He can do it. So pray for the one who is dead in their sin. Ask God to have grace on them. That they might see the truth of his love. How low our thoughts are of God. That we might have his fullness but ask for a measly, morsel, minuscule bite. He is not a miser, and he is not grudging. So what do you need from God today? Will you not ask of him? Again, James 4 is instructive here for us. You do not have because you do not ask. By the way, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss to spend it on your desires. Oh, our God, give us prayers to match your glory, for your glory, for our good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us. God, forgive me for such tepid little prayers. God, forgive me for coming before you with coldness of heart, for thinking of you in human terms, for thinking that of you in, in terms of what I can do. God, forgive us of such low thoughts of you and your glory and your goodness and your love and your power and, and Lord, all of your mercy and grace and your abounding steadfast love and, and all the rest of who you are. God, forgive us for not understanding your holiness. Have mercy upon us. God, give us vision of your love. Make us to know your love. God, help us to understand truly what Christ Jesus has done. Oh, Father, that our hearts would sing of your love forever. Oh, Father, that our, our lives would be patterned after your love. Father, we pray for spiritual strength. God, give us your spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Father, to kill flesh, our, our fleshly desires, our sinful lusts. Father, help us to go into this community 
into our households and into our workplaces and give you glory. And Father, we pray for these around us, these among us, who are blinded by sin, who stand in rebellion against you and your ways. Father, have mercy upon them, and may they call out to Christ. Father, give us boldness to speak unto them the words of Christ. That you would have many worshipers. That many would give you glory. Oh Lord, that we would that we would understand and know and experience the joy of your salvation. Father, renew that within us. For those of us who are cold and dead of heart, who have known of your grace, who are indeed saved, who will stand before you in glory as one's holy and blameless and above reproach. And yet, Father, even now in our hearts, we confess a coldness and a deadness. Father, have mercy upon us and alight again the flame of your salvation, the joy of your salvation. Oh, Father, that we would understand the dimensions of your love towards us. And it would be in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our mind, and in our words, in our lives, ever. Change us, O oh God. Conform us to Christ for the sake of your glory and for our good. We pray these things in the name of our only Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.